Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's reign, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Nineteen sixty-six. It was a quiet August afternoon in Beijing, and Bian Zhangyun hoped it would stay that way as she walked through the halls of the girls' school she helped run. But her hopes weren't high. Along with other Chinese intellectuals and teachers, she had been condemned by Chairman Mao as a rightist, an enemy of communism. Her students had reacted violently. Earlier that summer, they'd spat on her, shoved dirt in her mouth, made her wear a dunce cap, and physically assaulted her. And things were about to get much worse. Bian was suddenly met by members of the Red Guards, student-led paramilitary units devoted to Mao Zedong. There was nowhere to run. She was quickly captured and shoved into a room with four other school administrators. Where the group was tied up and declared a black gang or counter-revolutionaries, the Red Guards covered them in ink and forced them to their knees. Then the beatings began. For hours, Bian was pummeled with a nail-spiked bat. When she passed out, the Red Guards threw her body in a garbage cart. Two hours later, Bian was discovered, taken to a hospital, and pronounced dead. Bian Zhangyun became one of the first victims of the so-called Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution, a 10-year period of terror and chaos that killed millions. And it was all orchestrated by the leader of the Chinese Communist Party, Chairman Mao Zedong. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season on Dictators, we're exploring the reigns of Asian Marxist-Leninist dictators Mao Zedong and Pol Pot. Throughout the 20th century, their bloody takeovers and totalitarian approach to communism led to millions of deaths. Last week, we dove into the rule of Mao Zedong following his rise to power. At first a reluctant communist, Mao eventually embraced the ideology, albeit his own peasant-centric version. Using his peasant army, he was able to defeat the Kuomintang nationalists and take over China. This week, we'll explore Mao's contentious relationship with the Soviet Union, his failed Great Leap Forward program, and the Cultural Revolution, all of which decimated China's population, littering the so-called path to progress with bodies. We'll have all that and more coming up. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs, drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. 
Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. After nearly 40 years of conflict, from the fall of the Qing dynasty in 1911 to the warlord era to 20 years of civil war and Japanese occupation, China was finally at peace. And to the victor went the spoils. 55-year-old communist leader Mao Zedong. He was now the leader of the People's Republic of China and half a billion people. But victory was not without its problems. After decades of turmoil, China was devastated. The economy was a wreck. Inflation was through the roof. And the country's infrastructure was non-existent. Mao was faced with the daunting task of rebuilding. And he quickly realized he needed help. For a new communist nation, that help could only come from one place. The Soviet Union and the most powerful man in the communist world, USSR leader Joseph Stalin. Mao had long kept a contentious relationship with Moscow. Though he understood its importance as the de facto leader of all communists, Mao didn't always agree with the Soviets. In Mao's eyes, the rural peasants were the real revolutionaries, not the urban proletariat. Plus, Stalin had consistently urged the Chinese communists to collaborate with the nationalists, Mao's enemies and avowed capitalists. But Mao set aside his resentment. He was determined to drag China into the future, and he would do whatever it took to get there. So in December 1949, he boarded a train to Moscow. For nine weeks, Mao and Stalin hashed out a deal. And unsurprisingly, it wasn't entirely in Mao's favor. His biggest win was getting Stalin to promise aid if China came under attack by the U.S. or Japan. Stalin also agreed to help China financially with a few pennies from the Soviets' plentiful coffers. But Stalin flat-out refused to help Mao crush the nationalist holdovers who were hiding out on the island of Taiwan, 100 miles from mainland China. Mao wasn't charmed with Stalin's lack of compromise, especially considering it was paired with a lack of respect. Stalin was dismissive of Mao's innovations on Marxist theory and belittled him for needing to edit his writing before it was translated into Russian. But Mao knew he had no leverage to push back. China was his, but the country was in shambles. He'd take what he could get from communism's international leaders and plan for the day when he was powerful enough to reshape the Sino-Soviet relationship to his advantage. Because he had big plans for turning China into a modern international powerhouse, one that could take on any country in the world. His vision included agricultural collectivism, state-owned industries, state-controlled education and media, increased national defense, and a repaired and expanded rail system. And he got to work realizing that vision as soon as he returned from Moscow, starting with land reform. As Mao saw it, the only way to achieve the ultimate goal, agricultural collectivism, was for the land to be redistributed to the peasants, even if violence was a necessary part of that redistribution. 
From 1950 to 1952, peasants, with CCP guidance, rounded up the landlords and tried them for crimes against the poor. In many of these show trials, the peasants essentially took decades of grievances out on the landlords. The verdicts of these trials were always guilty, and the penalty was always death. But while Mao instigated violence against the landlords, he was also looking to build international alliances. The result was the Korean War. When the Japanese surrendered in 1945, their colony on the Korean peninsula was divided in two. The Soviet-administered North and the American-administered South. But after North Korean leader Kim Il-sung came to power in 1948, Kim decided the whole peninsula should be communist. And he had the support of Chairman Mao Zedong. It seems absurd that Mao, a whopping year into full control of China, would consider challenging the nuclear-armed Americans. And yet, that's just what he did. He believed the atomic bomb was a paper tiger and that Americans were afraid to go to war again so soon after defeating Japan. Mao was dead wrong. After the North Koreans pushed the South Koreans to the edge of defeat, the Americans came to their rescue they were able to move the North Koreans back to the original dividing line. So in October 1950, Mao sent Chinese troops to help the North Koreans. But those troops weren't enough for the North Koreans to regain their advantage. By 1952, the war had turned into a stalemate. A year later, both sides agreed to an armistice. The peninsula was divided at the 38th parallel. Not an obvious communist win, but for Mao, the Korean War was a success for two reasons. First, it showed that Mao was able to wield influence beyond the borders of China, even if the border was next door. And second, it successfully distracted from his campaign to squash so-called counter-revolutionaries. From 1950 to 1952, Mao unleashed a reign of terror to combat any political dissidents. According to Mao, 700,000 people were executed during this campaign against counter-revolutionaries. However, most historians believe this figure to be wildly low. The real number is likely between 2 and 3 million. In Mao's eyes, however, the deaths were a means to an end. By 1953, China was on the path to stability and prosperity. Sure, millions of people had died, but it was all necessary for making China a world power. And his next steps came straight out of the Soviet Union playbook. As we discussed in our episodes on Stalin, Stalin recognized that Russia had missed the Industrial Revolution, setting the country back in a rapidly modernizing world. So the Soviet Union initiated rapid economic programs known as the Five-Year Plans. Mao, for all his mixed feelings about Stalin, was inspired by these initiatives. So he launched his own Five-Year Plan. It called for state ownership of specific industries like steel and coal production, forced agricultural collectivization for rapid agrarian growth, and centralized economic planning. To help get the ball rolling, the Soviet Union deigned to help out, 
and sent some of their scientists, technicians, and engineers to help educate the Chinese. And just as it had in the Soviet Union, Mao's first five-year plan yielded quite a bit of success. By 1957, industrial production was averaging a 19% increase each year. More steel was produced each year than in the 49 years before Mao came to power. The state controlled or partially controlled every industry. Private ownership was eliminated. And almost 95% of farms were collectivized. On a social level, life expectancy increased from 36 to 57 years. Household income rose 9% annually, including a 40% increase in cities. On top of all that, workers' housing, healthcare, and education were subsidized. Perhaps that's why the Chinese people were shocked, but not disbelieving, when 63-year-old Chairman Mao made an unprecedented announcement in February 1957. Mao, despite his history of purging dissidents, gave a long poetic speech encouraging intellectuals to criticize the government. China was now well on the path to progress, and the only way forward from here was constructive criticism. He declared, let a hundred flowers bloom, let a hundred schools of thought contend. The Hundred Flowers campaign was incredibly popular. By the summer of 1957, millions of letters flooded into Beijing, criticizing the Communist Party and Chairman Mao. Nothing was off the table. People complained about bus times, chastised copying the Soviet five-year plans, and even attacked Mao's ideology. One writer called Maoism the antithesis of socialism, writing, true socialism is highly democratic, but the socialism we have here is not democratic. I call this society a socialism sprung from a basis of feudalism. Soon, some began to call for Mao to give up his power and end the communist regime, something Mao would never consider. By July, he had decided on his response to the abomination of these demands, a new purge. Mao labeled academics, intellectuals, students, artists, and writers, rightists, and ordered their arrests. Between 300,000 and 500,000 of these dissidents, or supposed dissidents, were sent to re-education or labor camps. Once there, some were executed, while others took their own lives. Some historians have argued that the Hundred Flowers campaign was a trap from the start. Mao only pretended to care about people's opinions to identify political enemies. Others claim Mao saw the outpouring of criticism as an opportunity that couldn't be wasted. But whatever Mao's true intentions, by the fall of 1957, the critics were silenced. And now, Mao could focus on the second five-year plan, the Great Leap Forward. It would soon become one of the most devastating economic programs in world history. Coming up, Mao's failed Great Leap Forward leads to millions of deaths and pushes him out of the political spotlight. Hi, listeners. 
If you're like me, you're always looking for the next great podcast to sink your teeth into. Well, here's one I know you'll enjoy. It's the Spotify original from Parcast, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead used their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join host Alastair Murden as he examines the formative years and the motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. Medical Murders highlights a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history. Or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman. Or even the doctor who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. Nineteen fifty seven's Great Leap Forward was supposed to be Mao Zedong's crowning achievement. He hoped it would make him the face of global communism, a position that suddenly seemed to be open in the aftermath of Joseph Stalin's recent death. At its core, the Great Leap Forward was an extension of the first five year plan continued agricultural collectivization, rapid industrialization, and an overall increase in socialist policies. But this time, industrialization would be by far the biggest priority. People literally had to erect furnaces in their own backyards to help produce steel. But more importantly, for rapid industrialization to occur, food was needed to feed factory workers. So increased collectivization had to happen simultaneously. More agricultural communes were put together by the government. These communes would then adhere to a strict set of rules. Each contained between 100 and 300 households, and each adhered to an almost militaristic lifestyle. Historian Philip Short explains, Officially, everyone was supposed to have at least six hours sleep every two days but some brigades boasted of working up to four or five days without stopping. The ambitious agricultural program was also inhumane, and ultimately its expectations were unrealistic. Even in the face of brutal treatment, peasant farmers could not meet the demands required to feed Mao's growing urban populations. Bad weather also plagued the 1957 program, slowing production down further. And almost immediately, famines swept through the countryside, killing millions. One of those affected by the Great Famine was journalist Yang Jishang. When he was 18 years old, Yang Jishang was told by a schoolmate that his foster father was starving to death. He rushed to his rural village and discovered that it was a ghost town. Everything had been stripped down for food. There wasn't a chicken, a dog, or even the tree outside of his family's home. 
When he made his way inside the house, he discovered his foster father was a shell of his former self. Yang tried to feed him rice, but the older man was too weak to even swallow. Less than a week later, Yang's father died. He was just one of the tens of millions of peasants who starved to death, all in the name of Mao's ambitions to turn China into a so-called modern nation. The Great Leap Forward was supposed to prove Mao was the world's preeminent communist leader. Instead, he became a threat to national security. But Mao wouldn't admit it or listen to any advisors that suggested it. As historian Rebecca Carl writes, Mao had patience for neither plotting planners nor overly cautious bureaucrats. He had even less patience for leaders at any level who said higher production targets could not be achieved. In fact, he was so deeply in denial that many were beginning to wonder if perhaps Chairman Mao's time as a leader should come to an end. In the summer of 1959, only a year into the Great Leap Forward, Mao decided to hold a party conference to figure out a way to fix China's economic problems. Instead, it turned into a condemnation of Mao's leadership. The leader of the opposition was Minister of Defense Peng Dehai. A veteran of the Chinese Civil War, Peng and Mao were quite close, or had been, until the disastrous Great Leap Forward turned Peng against his former friend. During the conference, Peng condemned Mao for the national crisis he had thrown China into and went so far as to describe Mao's plans as petty bourgeois fanaticism. And Peng wasn't alone. For the next two weeks, various party leaders unleashed their criticism of Mao's leadership. Many called for an end to the Great Leap Forward entirely. Mao's response to the criticism shouldn't have shocked the party, not after the Hundred Flowers campaign. While at first he accepted some blame, ultimately, Mao retaliated. He threatened to raise a new peasant Red Army and overthrow China's military force, the People's Liberation Army, which Peng controlled. Party leaders were terrified. They knew that even after the purges and the famine, many peasants were still loyal to Mao for bringing peace and reform to China. And the last thing they wanted was to send China back into civil war. So they fell in line. And with that, the Great Leap Forward continued unabated. By the time the initiative ended in 1962, an estimated 45 million people would die because of the famine. It was one of the worst crimes ever committed against humanity. Luckily, if internal dissent couldn't stop the horror, another disaster was heading straight towards Mao, and this one would be harder to weather. Mao's relationship with Stalin's successor, Nikita Khrushchev, was tenuous at best. Mao was utterly taken aback when Khrushchev denounced Stalin and began the process of de-Stalinization. While Mao had never loved Stalin, in his eyes, this was an indictment of the communist old guard and Mao himself. Plus, Mao believed in seniority rule. 
Stalin's death meant he was now the leader of global communism. Therefore, Khrushchev should show some kind of fealty towards Mao. But Khrushchev refused. He publicly criticized the Great Leap Forward, claiming that Mao rushed into communism without consolidating socialism first, mocking Mao as a Marxist theorist in the process. Mao was incensed. He retaliated by criticizing Khrushchev for getting too friendly with the Americans and thus betraying the global communist revolution. The tensions came to a head in 1960, when Khrushchev recalled 1,400 advisors and technicians the USSR had sent to help China modernize. China and Mao were now on their own. The break seemed to have rattled Mao. Perhaps he felt he simply didn't have enough support left to lead China. So, shockingly, he stepped aside. By the end of 1960, he was no longer the head of state. And for the next few years, Mao seemed to fade into the background. In the meantime, two party leaders took control, Deng Xiaoping and Liu Shaoqi. Right away, they began to roll back elements of the Great Leap Forward. Communes were scaled down while private family farms were restored. This led to a surge in wealth inequality, but the food shortages ceased. At the same time, Mao's critics, who had been sent to work camps during the Hundred Flowers campaign, were restored to civilian status. Academics returned to their educational institutions without fear of reprisal for speaking out against Maoism. Mao watched this process quietly for a time, but it didn't take him long to regret stepping aside. He wrote that bourgeois elements had entered Chinese society, which meant that socialism hadn't succeeded in China yet. And Mao knew better than anyone the only way for real socialism to succeed was through revolution. But of course, starting a second revolution wouldn't be easy. He had his peasant following, but Mao knew he needed more than that. So he turned to one of his most loyal supporters and the recently appointed head of the army, Lin Biao. Together, they came up with a plan. Lin would spread the cult of Mao throughout the army's ranks. First, by propping up a recently deceased soldier, Lei Feng, as the model comrade. According to Lin, Lei Feng kept a diary that chronicled his complete and utter devotion to Mao and Maoism. Lin Biao told his men that if they wanted communism to succeed, they needed to be like Lei. Then, Lin Biao took over editing Mao's newest writings. The collection of texts, aphorisms, and words of wisdom were transformed into a cheat sheet for followers of Mao Zedong thought. The book was published in January 1964, entitled Quotations from Chairman Mao Zedong, but it's better known as the infamous Little Red Book. Thanks to the work of Lin Biao, the army was well on its way towards falling under the thrall of Mao. But Mao wanted more support to ensure that his new revolution had all the fighters it needed. So he turned towards a notoriously feisty population, students, 
and especially students living in the countryside. These young people hadn't been around to fight the nationalists in Mao's last war, so they didn't have revolutionary experience, which Mao began insisting was crucial to being a real Maoist. He also began arguing that educational elitism was taking place in China, a disparity between city students and rural students. Mao was essentially sowing the seeds of class struggle among the student population. And it worked. Within a few years, Mao had a whole student sect devoted to him. All the pieces were in place. The only thing that remained was setting his second takeover into action. In May 1966, 72-year-old Chairman Mao Zedong attended a meeting of the Politburo, the party's highest level. During this conference, Mao denounced several party leaders for plotting to steer China back toward capitalism. Thanks to Mao's lingering influence over the party, four of these leaders were subsequently arrested and replaced with Mao sycophants. Mao followed this move by issuing the May 16th notification. This declaration justified the Cultural Revolution, claiming that there were enemies of communism that needed to be purged. Mao even characterized these bourgeois enemies as mini-Khrushchevs and insisted that the only real communists followed Mao Zedong thought. The rallying cry was felt everywhere, especially among his student followers. Throughout the summer, schools in the cities began to shut down. Demonstrations flooded the streets. During this chaotic period, the first Red Guards were established. These student-led gangs essentially evolved into a paramilitary unit wholly devoted to Chairman Mao. They were willing to do whatever it took to purge bourgeois elements from China. And within weeks of forming, violence became their modus operandi, thanks to instructions that came directly from Mao. On August 18, 1966, Mao stood atop Tiananmen Square and addressed roughly a million Red Guards, donning matching military uniforms and raising their copies of the Little Red Book. They awaited Mao's command. Which was, destroy the four olds. Old customs, old culture, old habits, and old ideas. He proclaimed, to rebel is justified, bombard the headquarters. The next day, Mao told police to stand down while the Red Guards took to the streets. The Cultural Revolution was officially on. Coming up, the Cultural Revolution brings a decade of terror to China. Now, back to the story. The disastrous effects of the Great Leap Forward and the Sino-Soviet split forced Chairman Mao Zedong into the background of Chinese politics. Under new leadership, China underwent a series of economic reforms to clean up Mao's mess. In the process, Mao became convinced that capitalism had returned, and he needed to stop it. By the summer of 1966, 72-year-old Mao inspired millions of students to violently take back communist China. The Cultural Revolution is generally divided into three distinct periods, 
The goal during all three periods was to root out capitalism by stripping China of its ancestral heritage, and also to strengthen Mao Zedong thought throughout the nation. The first period began in August 1966. After the initial August 18th address, Red Guard troops swept through Beijing on a mission of terror. They held mass book burnings, vandalized churches, destroyed centuries-old temples and cemeteries, and raided businesses and private homes. Within days, the property damage shifted to violence against the people. Anyone suspected of being a counter-revolutionary, and therefore a member of the bourgeoisie, was rounded up. And suspicion could be the result of simply wearing clothes that looked bourgeois. People were tortured, both physically and psychologically, before being summarily put to death. For two months, over 1,700 people were executed in Beijing. An unknown number died of suicide. And that was just the beginning. After Beijing, the Red Guards stormed the rest of China, first in major cities and then the countryside. They destroyed art that could be considered subversive. And then artists themselves started to destroy their work, hoping to avoid retribution. Even family photographs and diaries were burned out of fear that they might appear capitalistic. Chaos reigned over China. The streets and soil ran red with blood as the cult of Mao replaced ancient Chinese heritage. Mao knew he caused the disaster, as he told party leaders, since it was I who caused the havoc, it is understandable if you have bitter words for me. But his mea culpa was purely for show. His students loved him and his ideas. They quoted his works. They carried his portraits and erected statues of him in city squares. On the sides of buildings, they wrote, Long live Chairman Mao, or our great teacher, great leader, great commander, great helmsman. And he loved it. The first period of the Cultural Revolution came to an end in the summer of 1968. By now, the Red Guards had become factionalized and out of control. To quell the violence, Mao sent the People's Liberation Army to round up these overzealous students and send them to re-education camps in the countryside. Once in the countryside, they were ordered to learn what life was like as a peasant. At the same time, the government was systematically purged and replaced with sycophantic military leaders. During the 1969 Party Congress, a new Central Committee was elected and a new constitution was ratified. Mao then named his successor Lin Biao, the man who helped ignite the Cultural Revolution. China was now officially under a military dictatorship. The dictatorship lasted from 1969 to 1971. During this period, border clashes with the Soviet Union led General Lin to declare martial law, and in the process, increased Lin's power. Which the aging Mao did not like. He had just reclaimed his position, and now Lin looked like a threat to that power. But there was no way Mao was going to lose power again to Lin 
or anyone. On September 13, 1971, Lin Biao and his family left China and flew to the Soviet Union. About an hour into the flight, the plane suddenly crashed in Mongolia. No one survived, and it took dental records to identify Lin as one of the passengers. To this day, details surrounding the crash remain a mystery. Whether or not he was involved in the plane crash, Mao wasn't going to waste this golden opportunity. Seemingly overnight, Mao began yet another purge within the government, this time removing high-ranking military officials he had just installed a few years earlier. Replacing Lin as Mao's successor was the more moderate Zhou Enlai, which signaled the start of the third and final period of the Cultural Revolution. By now, the revolutionary zeal had been abandoned by the people. Between the military dictatorship and the constant party infighting, most young people had become disillusioned with militant Maoist ideals. Instead, many began to turn their backs on Mao Zedong thought and reconnected with China's past. However, that didn't mean there weren't still radical elements in China. Most notably, this was the period of the now infamous Gang of Four. Led by Mao's wife, Jiang Qing, the Gang of Four were a group of influential politicians from Shanghai who pushed for Maoism. Even to this day, much of their activities remain a mystery. However, in the early 1970s, they were elevated to the CCP's Politburo and controlled China's press, thus becoming Mao's propagandists. The rise of the Gang of Four was seemingly Mao's final attempt to keep the revolutionary spirit alive, a Hail Mary to continue the communist fight. And yet, despite elevating the group to the upper echelons of the party, Mao consistently undermined their credibility. He often criticized them in public, claiming they didn't know anything about socialist theory. This odd contradiction likely stemmed from his hatred for his wife, Jiang Qing. Mao and Jiang had been married since 1938, and she was Mao's fourth wife. Prior to her involvement in Marxist politics, Jiang was an actress. But as the civil war between the communists and the Kuomintang nationalists escalated, she felt a sense of duty to the communist cause. Jiang stayed out of the spotlight until the Cultural Revolution. In the early stages, she helped Lin Biao peddle the cult of Mao. And by the third period, she was the de facto mouthpiece of the revolution. But as the Cultural Revolution raged on, Mao started to distrust Jiang. In a letter, he wrote that there was no point in their seeing each other because she continually ignored his advice. So why Mao elevated her with the other Gang of Four members remains a mystery, especially since all Mao seemed to do was troll them in public. Even when it came to making the most important possible decision about China's future. In 1972, Mao suffered a stroke and Zhou Enlai, his successor, was diagnosed with cancer. Looking for yet another new successor, 
Mao decided to pick a man who would infuriate his wife, Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping was one of the leaders who undid Mao's great leap forward policies. During the early days of the Cultural Revolution, Deng was spared execution but forced to work at a tractor factory out in the country. But despite all that, Mao had always liked Deng, stating, if Lin Biao's health should fail him, I will let Xiaoping back. With Lin Biao dead and Mao and Zhou's health rapidly declining, Mao made good on his word. In 1973, Deng Xiaoping was brought back into the party. This decision stunned Mao's wife. To her and the rest of the Gang of Four, Deng was far too conservative. His return to power essentially put the Cultural Revolution on the edge of extinction. Again, why Mao would undermine the very thing he was hoping to keep alive is hard to fathom. It's possible that he realized he'd made a mistake in elevating the Gang of Four in the first place, but didn't want to appear weak by acknowledging it. Regardless, Mao seemed to understand that Deng Xiaoping was the only person who could keep his wife in check. Over the next few years, the Gang of Four and Deng Xiaoping were locked in a political struggle over China's future. But ultimately, Deng was Mao's successor and he knew that all he had to do to win the fight was survive until Mao's death. Luckily, it appeared he wouldn't have to wait long. Throughout the early 1970s, Mao's health deteriorated. He had difficulty eating, reading, speaking, and walking. Finally, in 1974, Mao was diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, known commonly as Lou Gehrig's disease. Throughout 1976, Mao suffered three major heart attacks, the third of which came on September 2nd and left Mao comatose. Six days later, Mao awakened and had enough strength to slowly read over official reports. But by around 11 p.m., Mao once again fell into a coma. This time, he didn't wake up. Ten minutes after midnight on September 9th, 82-year-old Chairman Mao Zedong died. After Mao's September 18th funeral, the Gang of Four tried to seize power for themselves. Unfortunately for them, Mao wasn't the only one who disliked his wife. His widow was widely despised within the party. On October 6th, the Gang of Four and their associates were arrested. Three of the four, including Jiang Qing, were given life sentences in prison, while the fourth received 20 years. Mao's cultural revolution was officially, finally, over. It's been over four decades since Mao's death. In those 40 years, China has become the fastest-growing country on Earth. However, it wasn't because of Maoism. Deng Xiaoping became the head of China a few years after Mao's death. Though he was committed to the Communist Party, Deng realized that reintroducing elements of free market capitalism were needed to bring China out of poverty. This included decollectivizing agriculture and increasing foreign investment. Though the government still technically controlled certain aspects of the economy, 
it made room for free market areas. For example, farmers were still required to sell their goods to the state, but they were now allowed to sell them in the marketplace as well for a profit. Deng's economy led to an economic boom, but it also had consequences. Overpopulation led the government to implement the draconian one-child policy. Wealth inequality became rampant, and a wave of corruption followed. China in the 21st century has embraced an indeterminate combination of Maoism and capitalism. It is essentially a mixed economic system that is entirely controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. In a way, China is actually an example of state-controlled capitalism. And if China is a capitalist state, where does that leave Mao Zedong, whose whole mission was to make China communist? Mao never really left China. Deng himself refused to completely condemn Mao, likely fearing it would impact the legitimacy of the CCP. It was the communists who defeated the nationalists and the imperialist Japanese. So it was important to maintain a type of hero worship, even if Mao was a tyrant. This idea remains in place today. In recent years, Mao and Maoism have experienced a wave of nostalgia. Though many condemn him for the famine and the cultural revolution, others see Mao's reign as a lost era of simplicity and purpose. China's current president, Xi Jinping, has even capitalized on this notion. After coming to power in 2012, Jinping took on the corruption that began with Deng, in the process equating himself to Mao Zedong. And just like Mao, Xi Jinping has managed to consolidate power within the CCP, setting himself up as a sole leader. By 2016, he was in charge of virtually everything. The economy, foreign affairs, defense, and even the internet. He removed term limits, effectively making him leader for life, utilized mass surveillance on citizens, enforced a prison-like system of re-education on Uyghur Muslims, and created a cult of personality. And he's able to justify it all in the name of confronting Western imperialism. The only real difference between Xi Jinping and Mao is that Mao was also a mass murderer. In his effort to rid imperialism from China, be taken seriously as a Marxist theorist, and keep the revolutionary spirit alive, millions of people died. The Great Chinese Famine killed between 35 and 45 million. Meanwhile, the Cultural Revolution resulted in 1.5 to 2 million deaths, and another million is estimated as a result of various purges throughout Mao's reign. Mao Zedong may have had a communist utopia in mind when he took control of China in 1949, but his arrogance and lack of humility made him one of the deadliest dictators in world history. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we move to Cambodia and explore the life and reign of Pol Pot. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other originals from Parcast free on Spotify. 
We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein, and research by Chelsea Wood and Brian Petrus. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs> ¶¶